you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I wonder if you can finish this sentence, parents, or maybe even children, that maybe have heard this phrase from your parents or your grandparents, look at me when I'm... Yeah, so that has to be said, okay? So some of you are familiar with that. There's something about parenting that you have to utter the phrase every once in a while while you're protecting your children. You're giving some advice that's protective. You're giving some advice that is corrective. And the response can be because of the weight of those words and the sense of, of uh, how uncomfortable one might be in receiving those words where the ceiling becomes absolutely fascinating as they look up. Or their shoelaces become wholly intriguing to them in the moment as they look down. Uh, There are times where you are sharing something that needs to be shared with your children or your grandchildren, and it is very difficult to make eye contact because you don't want to look into the eyes of the person who's saying the words that are hard to hear. Scripture can be that way at times. You know, the words of Jesus that come to us, words like the Beatitudes, that at times we as Christians have a difficulty making eye contact with the very words of our Savior. As he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then we come to the culmination of the Beatitudes, what is arguably the most countercultural part of the Beatitudes where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Is there any portion of the Beatitudes, it's more countercultural than this. Now, certainly we don't full-heartedly go headfirst seeking out persecution just as an end unto itself out of interest or curiosity. We don't place upon ourselves as followers of Christ this martyrs complex, but we need to be reminded that for hundreds and thousands of years to be a follower of Christ was to, at times, meet the fate of Christ. That Jesus is the blessed one. That Jesus is the one that has purely and wholly inhabited the Beatitudes. Jesus is the one who is the meek one. He is the one who knows what it is to mourn over Jerusalem. He is one who knows what it is to be poor in spirit, to totally depend upon his Father as he hungers and thirsts after righteousness in a perfect way. So it is that Jesus has been reviled. So it is that Jesus has been spoken falsely about. So it is that Jesus is the persecuted one who through his pain we are offered salvation through the finished work of the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. He is the perfect blessed one. And as we listen to the Beatitudes, especially in the comfort of our context this morning, we might be tempted to think there's nothing that we can learn Because the context of persecution is is most often foreign from our personal experience. So what do we learn in these three verses? 
Well, first, we learn something about how persecution works in the life of the church, the church globally, the church historically. We see from Matthew's words that persecution has been and is a sign of one's faith. In verse 12, you notice that Jesus is hearkening back to the Old Testament example of prophets who were persecuted. He doesn't footnote that with, uh, oh, think back of this person. But we could just think of Jeremiah, the, the great Jeremiah who was called the weeping prophet, probably arguably the most prosecuted or persecuted Old Testament prophet. Jewish kinsmen would curse him, they would beat him, they would throw him into prison, they would bound him in stocks. And as he was bound in stocks, he was thrown into a well and left for dead. So Jeremiah knew what it was like to experience persecution. That persecution was the unique soul in which the Christian church was birthed out of. Seven, as many as seven of the New Testament epistles of Paul were written from a prison context. John was exiled in Patmos when he writes the Revelation. We read in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35, this great litany that we know to be the hall of faith. And we read some were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. This is our heritage. The the Christian church was birthed in the blood of the martyrs. This is your heritage. This is my heritage. And we live in a day and age that has no place for this vocabulary. That has no place for this experience in the life of the church. You remember that 70s country song by Lynn Anderson where she says, I beg you pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. We have some rose garden promising churches. We have some rose garden promising pastors who said to be a a follower of Christ, it automatically will introduce you to a life of ease and comfort and material gains. And there's no place for Christian suffering. There's no place for a vocabulary of persecution. There's no place for Jesus' words. Jesus has not promised to be your genie in the bottle that you can rub three times with your prayers and out he comes to grant your every health, wealth, and material gain and prosperity request. He doesn't promise, he didn't promise then to his followers safety and security. In actuality, he says in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. It is a false gospel. It is a false gospel to equate being in Christ as this automatic access to this divine vending machine of endless health and endless wealth and endless prosperity. If you would only believe enough, if you'd only trust enough, if you'd only have enough faith, How untrue and how utterly offensive to millions of Christians who are persecuted around the world and in our history and who have lost their lives and suffered persecution. Their difficulty was not a sign of their lack of faith. Their difficulty was a sign of their faith. 
And we must say anathema. We must say no. We must say this is not true. It's not true then. It's not true now. And it's not true in the history of the church. Persecution has often been a sign of one's faith. Secondly, persecution often increases one's longing for heaven. Notice that this beatitude, unlike the other beatitudes, which are pithy one-verse statements, this one has three verses, and the repetition of this beatitude is a repetition of the promise of the reward in heaven. Again, in verse 11, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then the repetition, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Notice that throughout church history that a person who faced persecution had the promise that this world, like it is, is not our home. This is not our final destination. That God has a redemptive plan to lead us to the new heaven and the new earth. And this world as it is, is passing and will be redeemed and restored like it was in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That is our final destination. That is our permanent address. We often live in a day where where we get confused about that, that, that this is as good as it gets. We, we are tempted to make heaven on earth right now, and it's a unique temptation. It's a temptation that many of our forefathers and forebears in the Christian faith who were uh, slaves, did, they did not feel that. There's a great tradition of the spirituals that were birthed out of pain and inhumane and injustice. And in the midst of their pain and in the midst of their Christian faith, they would, they would sing out, swing low, sweet chariot coming forth to carry me home. I looked over Jordan and what did I see coming forth to carry me home? A band of angels coming after me, coming forth to carry me home. There was no confusion. The plantation was not home. Their master was not their master. There was one master, and he was the king of kings, and he was the lord of lords, and they longed for and they looked forth to that place where their true home was to be. Now, we, we in the comfort and the ease that most of us experience in our middle class and upper middle class existence, we, we live in this unique time in church history, this unique opportunity that gives us this unique temptation to think to ourselves that for the first generation maybe, that heaven is actually a letdown. What are you looking forward to when you have everything here? What, what, what do you even actually hear it? And, and pain and loss is personal to me, and pain and loss is personal to you, and we certainly understand why someone who is tragically taken from this earth in an untimely way, there'd be a temptation to go down a litany of things that they did not get to experience. But so often we exclusively see loss of a Christian in those terms of what they miss on earth. But understand, we're, we're one of the first generations who over-accentuate what one misses on earth and under-emphasizes what they gain in heaven. That is your permanent address. This is passing away. Yes, we work against injustice. Yes, we preach against things. Yes, we pray for rights to be, uh, wrongs to be righted in our world and for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. 
You have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. This is not a great by and by, pie in the sky kind of faith. Yes, this is important, but this is not all that there is. And so we must be reminded as we think through this that that Satan has a way that is uniquely tempting to all of us to blind us to what we have to look forward to by by thinking of what we will miss here. I love the way C.S. Lewis in an address, a sermon called The Weight of Glory, says we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he or she cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I'm far too easily pleased. You, we, we are far too easily pleased. Persecution is a sign of one's faith. Persecution increases our longing for heaven. Persecution, thirdly, it deepens one's faith. This is one of the unique ways that persecution throughout the history of the Christian church, as one experiences persecution, as one experiences difficulty, there is a promise that God never wastes our wounds. He never wastes our hurts. That your hurts are raw material that God uses to strengthen you to depend upon him more. Uh, The half-brother of Jesus, James, most likely is is hearkening back to the Beatitudes in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, where he says, Not rejoice and be glad, but count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's a way of saying that what you go through that is difficult, God works all things together for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. All things working together, God in his unique sovereign plan has has providentially allowed pain and difficulty and even persecution to be those things that grow our spiritual muscles. If, If you're wanting to grow in your physical stamina, if you want to grow in your physical strength, I assure you that a total regimen of five-pound dumbbells and leisurely strolls on treadmills isn't going to get you there. It's just not. There has to be a sense of stretching and a sense of pressing and a sense of the weight being overbearing to us to grow us. And so God sovereignly uses those things that in our own strength we cannot stand under. But thank the Lord that we're not alone, that he has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trial, and even historically in the midst of Christian persecution, he is there and it's in that raw material of the messiness of life and the sinfulness of humanity that God has used that to make the church depend and look more like him. And so we look at the Beatitudes and we realize that persecution is a sign of one's faith. It increases our longing for heaven. It deepens our faith in Christ. But then we must ask the question, well, what's our response? What's our response, especially in the day and age where persecution is not the experience of many, if any of us in this room? Many of us will not suffer persecution. Many of us know nothing like what is read in Hebrews chapter 11. 
Many of us know nothing what it's like to think of the, the church tradition that tells us that the first followers of Christ, the early disciples, less Judas, were 11 of them. Ten of them would meet, according to church tradition, deaths by martyrdom. Peter, most famously, was being crucified, and he said, I am not worthy to be crucified as my Savior was. I desire to be crucified upside down. I mean, this is our heritage here. Many of us, none of us, will experience that, most likely. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, then what is our role? Well, our first role is to pray and support the persecuted church today. Pray and to support the persecuted church today. There is a temptation to lose global perspective. There's a temptation for us in Birmingham, Alabama, to be isolated from the truth that there has never been a time in human history where it is more dangerous to be a Christian than it is today. Do you understand that approximately 215 million Christians face significant levels of persecution today? According to an organization entitled Open Doors that has a great mission to make the Christian church cognizant of persecution around the world. According to Open Doors, one in 12 Christians today live where their faith is illegal, forbidden, or punished. One in 12. Every month, according to Open Doors, approximately 255 Christians are killed. 104 are abducted. 180 Christian women are assaulted for their faith. 66 churches are attacked or destroyed because of naming the name of Christ. 160 Christians approximately, because of their faith, are detained without trial and imprisoned. When we read the words of the Beatitude, understand that there are men and women that read these promises from jail. They're men and women who do not have a father or a mother. They're children who grieve the loss of parents because their parents named the name of Christ Jesus and they're orphaned because they stood for Christ instead of bowing to the culture. And so as we gather together, we gather together as a part of the body of Christ and the body of Christ is much larger than this church. And what a wonderful privilege that we have as we heard Travis and the great partnership that our church has had with Go Love Tell in Maine. And to see the wonderful fruit of what God is doing in and through the faithfulness of that congregation. And to know that our church has had a little, a little bit of a privilege of, of that narrative and God's sovereign will to be a part of what God is doing there. Open Doors has what is called the World Watch List. And it lists the, the 10 most persecuted countries in the world. And it details, I encourage you to go to their website. I encourage you, not necessarily right now, to pull out your iPhone or to pull out your smartphone and to go to the, to the app store and to download Open Doors. It's a great prayer tool to, to get us out of navel gazing. To get us with a global perspective of what people who name the name of Christ face on a daily basis. And I tell you, for, for us as a family to, to allow us to have the privilege of praying for believers in North Korea and to pray for believers in Afghanistan and Somalia and Pakistan and Sudan and Yemen and Iran and India and Syria... 
For my three boys that are 13 and 11 and 7 that have so much comfort and privilege that can take for granted what it means to name the name of Christ, it can transform your family devotions. And I encourage you. Now, one of the things that's really encouraging to me as a pastor is that as I list those countries that are some of the most dangerous countries to be a Christian, I know that God has sovereignly allowed our church to be a part of his work in many of these places that I've named. There there are some places and some countries that, that we have the opportunity to have church members connected that are looking for and working toward physical platforms to be able to point people to the spiritual source of salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's literally all I can say about it. We had three just this past week that were in Sudan, a part of an eight-year partnership that we've had in which we as a church have had the great opportunity to have local ministry volunteers that we've sent from this church and financial resources that we've sent there. And we've been able to have the great opportunity to help with the building of two schools and drilling of wells and training of pastors who face persecution daily in their faith. You open up that handout there and you see that there's summer opportunities to help and to come alongside of missionaries and to care for them. And the missionaries that we have the unique opportunity to care for this summer are most of them are serving in places where we cannot pray for them by name or by country. As they work for the International Mission Board, they, don't, they, 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 they go into places where to name the name of Christ could lead them to imprisonment and historically, even in the worst case scenarios, has led them to death and martyrdom. And we have that great privilege. We have that great privilege to pray for people like Tim and Teresa Simpson, who from our church, as they were leading, God had a call upon their life, and they're in a country now that is increasingly hostile to the claims of Christianity and to religious liberty. And so as we gather to worship and as we gather to pray, we gather understanding, yes, we're thankful for the body of Christ that's located here in the metro Birmingham area, but we are part of something that's far greater. And what a wonderful privilege That every time we pray, every time that we meet, we're able to say, not only, God, what are you doing here, but what do you have for us to do there? And some of those theirs are in places that are difficult and face great persecution. So we pray for and we support the work of the persecuted church. We ask, what am I willing to suffer for the cause of Christ? See, not only do we pray for and support the persecuted church, but we also ask, what am I willing to suffer for the cause of Christ? I feel the temptation to be so timid in my faith. I feel the temptation to to be muted upon my witness. I feel the temptation at times to sequester my faith away from the context in the public so so I don't have to have uncomfortable conversations. Is anyone with me? Do you feel that temptation? Do you feel that temptation to to have your faith be this private part of you that that has no public manifestation? And I assure you, our culture desires that. I assure you, our culture has less room for you to publicly live for Christ in your context. And it takes courage and it takes wisdom to be winsome in our witness. To be faithful in the callings upon our life, but ultimately understanding that the greatest calling that we have is to go and make disciples. No matter our calling and profession 
in our workplace. It takes courage to stand firm when the winds of culture are blowing in the opposite direction. And there are teenagers that are in this room. There are teenagers in this room that are trying to figure out, who am I? There are teenagers in this room that are trying to figure out, who are my friends? What is my group? And so they want to follow Christ, and they want to love their friends. They want to follow Christ. They want to be a good friend. And then all of a sudden, those things can come into opposition. Where they have to make decisions. Will, will I follow the crowd in a way of compromise, or will I stand with courage in Christ Jesus And that can be a really difficult thing for a 14-year-old to do. It takes courage. It takes prayer. It takes the support of this church. But not only can it be difficult for a 14- or a 17-year-old, you know something can be difficult for you at 44 and 54 and 64 and 39 and 74 and 84 who feel as if, you know, I I, I want to put my faith over, over to this place here and sort of be an anonymous Christian lest I I rub someone the wrong way, lest I say something that is offensive. And in your work environment, there are going to be different perspectives, and it needs to be different perspectives. There needs to be an openness to people, a sensitivity to people. But does that mean a wholesale capitulation of your faith? Does that mean a wholesale throwing out of your convictions where you come to a place where what is right becomes what is wrong in your eyes and what God says is wrong becomes what is right? Many of us will have to answer that question and we have to answer that question where the rubber hits the road Monday through Friday. And so we have to ask ourselves, what am I willing to suffer for the cause of Christ? We must also pray and support the persecuted church. And we also finally must realize that more persecution is likely coming in our context. It is very difficult to predict this, and it's very difficult to know this exactly. But it does seem that we can can feel and detect where the society cultural winds are blowing And more often than not, they're blowing in directions that are antagonistic to Christian values. Christian values in our culture as a whole, Christian values in the academy. Oftentimes, our culture values being open-minded about everything. The, The slogan of Planet Fitness is the slogan of our culture. We are a judgment-free zone. You want to believe that? Believe that. You want to do that? Who, who am I to say that you're wrong? You want to think that? Well, you can think that. But I tell you this, it is a judgment-free zone. It is open-minded until, interestingly enough, the name of Christ is mentioned often. Anything and everything is good until we start talking about the name of Christ. And it's in that point that there's hostility that is increasingly there. And and understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying persecution. We as Christians, we we need to move away from being so easily offended in our culture. So often we're talking about persecution and we're telling stories about when I went to the grocery store and the cashier said happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. That is not persecution. 
we're far too easily offended. And we're far too easily majoring in the minors here. And when you have a global perspective, boy, it helps you think through this a little bit better. And so, going forward, we will, just holding truth that has been for thousands of years agreed upon in the Judeo-Christian culture, like, for instance, that, that marriage is between a man and a woman to death do us part. Just to hold that truth from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2 that has been agreed upon at every turn within the Christian church until the last few decades, to hold that is increasingly viewed in our culture as antiquated at best, hate speed at worst, to hold to, in the Christian church, the exclusivity of Christ as the only path to salvation, is increasingly, even within the quote-unquote Christian church, as seen as narrow-minded and disrespectful and bigoted. And so we're going to have to answer. Maybe you don't as much in your workplace, but I assure you this. If you're a parent of teenagers, your teenagers are going to have to answer this question. My sons are going to have to answer this question much more acutely than I did. Your grandchildren are going to have to answer this question more acutely than you had to. And this is the question. What are you willing to suffer? For your core convictions. Will you, will I, will we as a church choose the path of compromise? Or will we stand in the truth of God's word? We'll be blown by the popular wind of change that is always moving and always shifting, or will we stand firm, rooted in the unchangeable nature of Christ? This is a question that more often than not in the years to come will cost us when we answer and stand firm with Christ. But no matter what it costs, no matter what one experiences, in the days to come and the decades to come, this is still true. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you this morning twofold, praying, interceding, understanding that there are those that are reading this passage of Scripture across the world today, and some of them are reading it in their heart language or memorizing it in the heart language, and they literally are in prison for their faith. There are sons and daughters who've experienced the unthinkable because a mother or father stood boldly for Christ. There are followers of Christ around this world that have suffered heinous injustice because they've stood as Stephen stood. And as the stones of our culture across the world are beating upon Christians and causing many to say, is it worth it? I pray that today you would encourage that, that Christian that is suffering true persecution, true loss, true despair. And you undergird them with your strength. 
May they feel even now, whether it be in a jail cell or alienated from family members, that, that they are not alone and there are people maybe, maybe that they don't even know about, but can't even feel, but there's some sense of warmth of your spirit that is ministering to them even today. And help us, God, to be led and to be courageous and to be wise. You have planted us in a city that you have called us to love, but we understand this is not our ultimate home. That we have dual citizenship. What you call us to now is important, but we answer first and foremost to you. And so help us be courageous and wise, to be salt and light in our families, in our workplaces, in our community. Give us your spirit. We need you. Oh, how we need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.